Hey everybody, Brandon Schrand here. Before I start this episode, I want to say something on behalf of the Snake River Killer podcast team, and that is that I want to offer our deepest condolences to Detective Jackie Nichols, whose husband, Ben Nichols, the prosecuting attorney for Asotan County, was killed recently in a motorcycle wreck. The loss is a devastating blow to Jackie and the community at large. Believe me when I say he will be missed and mourned by so many. Now, I didn't know Ben, but I definitely knew of him. And if you've watched all the documentaries on these cases, he appeared in more than one of them. And in those appearances, you get a sense of him and his commitment not only to Jackie, but to the rule of law. Again, he will be missed. As for this episode, there are a few things that I want to mention before we get started. First, I want to give a few shout-outs to folks for leaving reviews on Apple Podcasts. If you've been listening and enjoy the show, consider leaving a review. It only takes a few minutes and it means more than you know. This week, I want to thank Sustainable Tia, Thornbus J, Tom T123, Zazzle12, Wilbur Podgeway, Rodeo and Zip, Belbs, and I Care When You Do. Again, your reviews mean a lot and they go a long way into supporting the show. Second, as many of you have seen, we hit something of a milestone with 115,000 downloads with listeners in every state and territory in the U.S. and nearly 100 countries worldwide. Because I haven't really had the bandwidth to advertise and market this podcast, this milestone is the result of you. Thanks to you, this show has grown the old-fashioned way, word of mouth, grassroots, organically. As a token of our appreciation, we're going to air a special upcoming episode that features you and your questions, comments, and ideas. If you have a question or a comment or a theory that you would like the team to answer or field, go to our website, snakeriverkiller.com, and fill out the comments section. Then we'll gather up all your feedback and address it on a subsequent episode featuring the entire team. I'm looking forward to it. And again, thank you. Finally, the order for the commemorative bench and plaque for Christina White has been placed. We're still in the process of determining the date for the dedication, and when I find out, I'll let you know. For now, however, let's dive into this episode, The Most Dangerous Game, Part 2. The Snake River Killer Podcast is tracking multiple active and cold cases. This investigation is happening in real time. All individuals named and unnamed in this podcast are innocent until proven guilty by a court of law. This episode contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. Where is Christina White? Who is the suspect? Detective Jackie Nichols believes there may be a connection between Christina White's disappearance, the murders of Christina Nelson and Brandy Miller, as well as the disappearance of Stephen Pearsall. All suspected to have fallen victim at the hands of another. Law enforcement made a critical discovery shortly after the murders of Miller and Nelson. The man that was working in the theater that night lived at the home where Christina White disappeared from. He was very odd himself. He was more creepy, scary odd. She was on the porch and she waved goodbye. And that was the last time I saw her. 
For this episode, I want to go back to the summer of 1970, two years before Antoinette and Nino's death, and two years after Lance was discharged from the Navy. He was 22 years old and living with his mother, Jane Neputy, and stepfather, Joseph Neputy, in Saratoga, California. During this summer of 1970, Lance received a visitor from the Austin neighborhood back in Chicago. Karen Dill wanted to visit California that summer, and because her mother and Lance's mother, Jane, were close friends from their time in the Austin neighborhood, her mother had made arrangements for Karen to stay with Lance and his mother and stepfather in Saratoga. Recently, Karen reached out to Gloria and even had a photograph of her trip to San Francisco that features Lance, his mother, and another individual whose identity we're still trying to verify. You can see the photograph on our website, snakeriverkiller.com, under resources, case photos, and person of interest. I knew I wanted to speak with Karen to see what, if anything, she remembered about that trip and her time with Lance and his family, so I reached out. I'm Karen Dill. I knew Lance from when we went to the same small Lutheran elementary school in Chicago, and he was four years ahead of me and one year ahead of my sister. But our mother was good friends with his mother, and I don't recall specifically, but I'm sure we met early in the time that we were at the school. My mom and Jane were good friends. We were friends with their family. We um, went on a camping trip with their family in, I believe, about 1960. I don't remember a whole lot about it, but it was a trip out west. Then we had a lot of other interaction during our time in, in the elementary school with school plays and gatherings and things like that. Do you remember his mom very well, what she was like? Um, Not a lot about her, except that I thought she was very nice and... Like I said, she was mostly friends with my mom, and we had a lot of interaction in in school because we had had plays and things like that that went on that everybody participated in. The school was associated with a church, Lutheran church. They didn't attend our church. They attended another Lutheran church in the area. So you grew up in the Austin neighborhood, or? Yes. um, There was a, a main street that divided the part where he lived to the part where we lived. And we were just a few blocks off of that main street, and he was just a few blocks off the main street on the other side. Can you tell a little bit more about the uh, trip with Lance's family? Anything that sticks out to you? The only thing I remember well is that we were supposed to be going to the same places together and camping and whatever. And I know that at some point during the planned trip, They were supposed to go a different direction and and we were going on our own, but somehow we wound up getting separated earlier, I think after the first evening of camping in Iowa, somewhere after that we lost track of them and we were never, it was before the age of cell phones and everything, so there was no way to catch up with them or find out what happened to them, we had no idea. I'm sure we must have found out after everybody was back home from the trip what happened but i don't remember hearing anything about why we wound up losing track of them but parents weren't too concerned about it and uh i know since i spoke to my sister about it she said that she remembered that she was not real happy about going with them she did not like lance at all i guess she kind of made her uncomfortable or she said that he creeped her out 
But you ended up connecting again with Lance in 1970 when you went out to California, is that right? Yes. I had planned a trip from, I started out in San Diego. I had family in San Diego and sent family in Los Angeles. And my mother helped me plan the trip, whatever, because I was going on my own. But she contacted Jane and made arrangements for me to spend some time with them. So I was in San Diego with cousins and L.A. with cousins. And then I took a bus, which was a big mistake, took a bus from, uh, from L.A. to San Jose. And I'm pretty sure that they picked me up from the bus station. You stayed with them at their house there in Saratoga? Yeah, I spent at least three, maybe four days there because we went to several sightseeing locations while I was there. Which sightseeing locations, do you remember them off the top of your head? Well, the Golden Gate Bridge. Um, They took me to the Winchester house, and uh, we went to a some kind of Japanese garden. Beyond those three things, I don't recall. Was there anything about Lance's behavior or anything that stood out? Yeah. From that time on, I always remembered one morning that I got up to have breakfast with them, and I just had dressed somewhat nicely so that I, you know, wouldn't be, I wouldn't have to get actually get dressed, but wore something that was fairly nice, robe of some kind anyway. And got to the kitchen, and Lance was there, and said something to me. I don't have the exact words, but he said something to the effect of, who gets up in the morning looking that good? You don't have a hair out of place, and you're impeccably dressed. Mm. And that kind of made me feel so sort of flattered, but kind of uncomfortable, whatever, I guess. Just because it's kind of a a direct pass or whatever, because I hadn't seen him for, I don't know how many years. You hadn't seen him prior to when you were back in Chicago and he was there. So right. Yes. Then. Right. No real uh, real understanding or connection to him after he left the area or went to, went to into the Navy or whatever. So um, I probably didn't have much interaction with him when he was in high school, but I don't recall. I'm sure my mother still had connections to his mother at that point. Right. So you stayed about three or four days three or four days yes and one of the things that stood out to me was that you asked me if if i could stay another couple of days because uh. he said that he had other things that he would like to do or go places that, that he thought i'd be interested in or whatever and uh i said you know that he's kind of sorry but i had already made arrangements for another family from our church who also went to california that they were picking me up yeah. and I would be flying home from San Francisco. Okay. And were you kind of glad to leave? Or? Yes. Uh, yes, yes, I was because, like I said, it made me feel uncomfortable. And I don't remember whether I felt uncomfortable during the actual traveling around sightseeing, but I just know I remember being relieved and to say that I was, you know, that I couldn't stay. The other family was actually coming there to pick me up. So in the photo that you sent to Gloria of Lance, his mother, in front of the Golden Gate, you took that picture? Yes, I did. And there's another gentleman in the photo, and you don't know who that 
was or you do know who that was? When I pulled out the photo from my collection, I, you know, recognized him as having been with us on several of the sightseeing locations, but I don't remember, I didn't remember anything more about him other than he was around a lot during the time I was there. And I didn't even remember his name. So that was something that I think somebody else who saw the picture identified him, but I'm not real sure who that is. Might have been a relative, but I don't think so. I don't know. So when you were growing up in Austin neighborhood, did you ever hear about Diane Taylor's murder? I didn't recall it, but my sister said that she had some recollection of it, but she also thought that it had been solved. So that was not maybe accurate, but she said that she had somewhat of a recollection of that being in the news in the neighborhood. But I was about 12 years old then. Austin at the time was kind of a, by and large, a middle-class family oh, yeah. type. Of yeah, thing. it was a very nice area. The homes like he grew up in and the one that I grew up in, we had a lot of two flats that were in the neighborhood, and that's where I grew up. But it was it was a real nice neighborhood. I mean, we could walk around and you know, do anything on our own. Kids were free to do their own thing, whatever. And it was a pretty safe neighborhood, and everybody, everybody knew everybody on your street or whatever, so. One question I was going to ask is, how did you come about to reach out to Gloria? How, how did that happen? Oh, well, it was very interesting because my husband and I were driving down the road one day last fall, I guess it was, and um, or maybe it was later in the year, I'm not sure. And I don't know how we got on the subject of dating before either of us met. I mentioned that my mother was always trying to connect me up with sons of friends of hers and my sister too and I said I wonder what happened I had this guy that wasn't really you know set up as a date for me but I said I you know knew him and his mother was a good friend of my mother's and I said I wonder what ever happened to him so I just thought well I'll look up you know on Facebook you know you know or you just look on the internet for somebody's name mm-hmm. and I looked up his name and it popped up on the Facebook page I said, Jim, you will not believe this, but Lance Voss is suspected to be a serial killer. He said, what? I said, yes. And I, and I went into the, got into the whole thing with the, the Facebook page. So I, I looked to see if Lance Voss's mother was listed as, as Jane Deputy. And I said, oh my God, it is him. Because I thought, well, maybe there's another Lance Voss, whatever. But then when I saw the name Jane Nepute, I said, well, that's that's him. You know, I said, I just couldn't believe it. So I posted on there that I knew Lance from, from elementary school and our mothers were good friends. And then she answered me. So she responded right away. One thing that really jumped out at me in my conversation with Karen was the story about how her family and Lance's family went on a camping trip together and that her sister was relieved that the two families somehow got separated because Lance evidently creeped her out. This was 1960, three years before Diane Taylor was murdered. Lance was 12 and was already being seen as off or creepy somehow, so that's one thing. Then of course there's her trip out to California and the part about where he showered her with all this over-the-top praise when she entered the kitchen for breakfast. And finally, he wanted her to stay longer, which, I mean, that could be innocuous, but I suspect there is a reason that she remembers it all these years later, and that she remembers his lavish compliments, something about what he said and the way he said it 
struck her then and has stuck with her ever since. The other thing that stood out to me had to do with the three places she remembers visiting with Lance. The Golden State Bridge, as evidenced in the photo, the Japanese Tea Garden, and the Winchester Mansion. Their visit to the Japanese Tea Garden reminded me of something Gloria had just told me recently, and that's that Lance's mother had at some point traveled to Japan and brought back a gift for Lance. And just what kind of gift did she bring back for her only child? A Japanese sword. Gloria's also been told by sources that he let the Civic Theater use this sword in a few plays. I was also reminded of the Gilbert and Sullivan show that the Zodiac quoted from, The Mikado, an opera set in Japan and whose lead character is named The Executioner, which of course called to mind the Zodiac's Executioner costume. Anyway, Lance's and Karen's visit to the Winchester Mansion of all places roused my interest. Known as the house the Winchester widow kept under constant construction to evidently appease the quote-quote ghosts of those slain by Winchester rifles, the house is clearly a tourist hotspot. But the more I learn about Lance, the more I see dark currents running through his otherwise humdrum activities, leading me to question his motives or apparent motives. And when it comes to the Winchester house, I remember when I found Christina's name in the Husky ad, it was Sam Sawyer who told me that when she Googled Lance's phone number in that ad, 9422, it kept pulling up the 9422 Winchester lever action rifle. Recall too that Lance worked at Omark, an ammunition company that manufactured, yes, Winchester bullets. In the Zodiac cases, the killer more than once specified the exact kind of ammunition used in his killings. Also this, Lance was and remains a gun enthusiast, as you will soon see. But for now, I just wanted to mention their touring of the Winchester Mansion and the 9422 phone number slash Winchester rifle connection and the Omark ammunition job. In a sense, two of the three sites they visited can be connected to weapons, if obliquely. Of course, if you view the Golden Gate Bridge itself as a kind of weapon and the water over which it spans in the context of the aforementioned water theory, then three of the three sites can be linked to weapons or methods of death. That same summer that Karen was staying with Lance, the Zodiac wrote his 11th letter to the San Francisco Chronicle. The letter you should know was dated June 26, the exact same day Kristen David went missing 11 years later. So that's one thing. In the letter, the Zodiac talks about a bomb. This is the Zodiac speaking. I have become very upset with the people of the San Fran Bay area. They had not complied with my wishes for them to wear some nice Zodiac buttons. I promised to punish them if they did not comply by annihilating a school bus. But now, school is out for summer, so I punish them in another way. I shot a man sitting in a parked car with a 38. Zodiac 12. SFPD 0. The map coupled with this code will tell you where the bomb is set. You have until next fall to dig it up. I mention this letter for a few reasons. First, the misspelling of bus with two S's, like Donna Lass or Donner Pass or Lance Voss or Voss, California. So that's one thing. But as I was reading this letter, it became clear to me that there is another through line that I just hadn't identified yet, and I think it could be significant. And that through line is school itself. Twice the bomb threats had been targeting school buses. All of the Zodiac victims were students. Even Paul Stein was a graduate student at the time of his murder. All of the victims connected to Lance were students. Diane Taylor was a young student taking classes at the YMCA where he served as her counselor. Antoinette Anino was a student at Del Mar High where she was connected to the theater program. 
Christina White was a student in a Soton at the time of her disappearance and recall the weird detail about what was found in Carl Flynn's pasture after she vanished. Yeah, her school papers. Kristen David, who vanished on June 26, 1981, 11 years to the day from which this very letter was postmarked, was a student at the University of Idaho. And Stephen Pearsall, Brandy Miller, and Christina Nelson were all connected to the Lewis Clark State College and the Civic Theater. Not only that, but what do we know about Lance himself? Well, we know that the one thing he never finished was school. And we also know that he applied to work for the Berryessa School District the same year Antoinette and Nino died. We also know that his cousin, Marjorie Saklum, a veteran both of World War II and Korea, and who had a basement, worked for the San Francisco School District as a speech therapist. In this letter, the Zodiac also wrote that the police had until fall to dig up the bomb, presumably because fall is when school would be back in session. The final thing you should know about the letter is that the Zodiac included a Phillips 66 roadmap with his signature crosshair serving as a compass over a point on the map. The compass has the numbers 9, 6, 3, representing the number positions on a watch, with a zero where the 12 should be. The crosshairs mark Mount Diablo, or the Devil's Mountain. Specifically, the crosshairs sit right on top of the Naval Radio Station, a communications center that relayed military and naval communications to seagoing vessels like the USS Vesuvius, for instance. As Robert Graysmith wrote in Zodiac, quote, It has long been thought that Zodiac might be a naval man who was out to sea in between murders and letters and thus remained undetected, end quote. Graysmith also points out that following the Civil War, the peak of Mount Diablo was used to, quote, plot longitude and latitude for the Bay Area, end quote. Also, I think it's worth considering the name of the mountain itself, Devil's Mountain. Elsewhere in his book, Zodiac, Graysmith talked about how Stanford professors, quote, recognized this odd mixture of Christian and ancient cult beliefs as having roots in Southeast Asia and some Satan-worshipping cults, such as the one in San Francisco led by Anton LaVey. Could Zodiac belong to the ranks of such a cult? End quote. Also on the roadmap, the Phillips 66 emblem is fairly close to the number 6 of the Zodiac road at the bottom of his compass, so it wouldn't be hard to see 666 as occurring on the map. The specter of satanic cults, of course, is another one of those through lines that we've seen really from the beginning of these cases, and it's showing up here again, so I wanted to call that out. The other thing I wanted to draw your attention to in this letter is that the Zodiac claims to have shot a man in a parked car. And cars, as we know, recur throughout the Zodiac cases and those connected to Lance, a man who, by the way, often worked as a mechanic. In fact, on October 27, 1981, three months after the brutal murder of Kristen David, an article appeared in the Lewiston Morning Tribune with the headline, quote, Voss running for a Soton City Council, end quote. In the article, they refer to him as, quote, an unemployed Asotan mechanic, end quote. Weirdly enough, I was once again reminded of the Gilbert and Sullivan opera, The Mikado. Why did I think of that opera in the context of mechanics? Well, in one passage of the production, the character Nank observes how, quote, Lord High Executioner of Titupu, why that's the highest rank a citizen can attain, end quote. The character Pooh agrees, quote, it is our logical Mikado, seeing no moral difference between the dignified judge who condemns a criminal to die and the industrious mechanic who carries out the sentence, has rolled the two offices into one, and every judge is now his own executioner. End quote. Yeah, the mechanic who carries out the killing, the mechanic who is the executioner with the executioner's hood and large dagger on his hip. 
when it comes to Lance, his interest in cars went far beyond his role of industrious mechanic. As I've mentioned several times in this show, Lance was involved in rally car events. Sometime in the late to mid-1960s, Lance joined a rally club calling itself BARF, short for Bay Area Rally Force, rally here being spelled R-A-L-L-Y-E. The club you should know had its own insignia or theme, that of a medieval knight dressed in full armor brandishing a sword and shield. You can see pictures of their insignia on our website, snakeriverkiller.com, under clues. Because the club started as early as 1966, while Lance was serving in the war, I doubt he had a hand in the design of the club insignia, but that insignia would have clearly appealed to him, and the elements of it are through lines in these cases, swords and medieval costumes. As it happens, the Bay Area Rally Force ran a number of what's called gimmick rallies, which I've come to learn are quite different from conventional rally car races. Trying to wrap my head around what a gimmick rally is or was, I reached out to some folks who were still active in these games in the Bay Area, and I was lucky enough to get in touch with Chris Wendt, who is an expert on gimmick rallies, and we jumped on a call. My name is uh, Chris Wendt. I live in the San Francisco Bay Area in Cupertino, and I've been doing what we call gimmick car rallies since the early 70s. I took a break from the late 70s to the mid 80s, but um, came back and have been rallying ever since. I just got exposed to it when I actually before I was driving or learned to drive, I was exposed by some friends and kind of got addicted to it. Gimmick rallies, as the name implies, are about tricks. But for the most part, when you hear the word rally, you think of people in souped up cars, driving around dirt roads, sliding around turns. These kinds of rallies are anything but that. These are typically events that are run in neighborhoods or industrial parks in where I live, or all around the San Francisco Bay Area and in a few other parts of the country. And at their heart, it, it's you're given a set of instructions to get you from the beginning uh, of a rally till the end of a rally. And the whole idea is to, to follow those instructions, and they're layered instructions, I think, like you said. And the whole idea is to find little tricks or traps or gimmicks and when you find them, depending upon the type of rally, there's different ways of scoring whether or not you got those tricks. So think of it really as a puzzle in a car. So basically the way the event works is the term route instruction is on a page and there's sequentially numbered instructions like R first chance, L at Jones, R at stop, things like that. And those tend to be the lowest priority instructions. You can follow those and get from beginning to the end. And then there's higher priority instructions, like the general instructions or the main instructions of the rally that tell you how to run it. And the idea is in a course marker gimmick rally, which is what I was running in the 70s, and I think Jeffrey was running those too. Just to clarify something really quick, when Chris says Jeffrey, he means Lance, but it's sort of appropriate given what we know now that Lance is now going by Jeffrey. And those events, you running along, you're doing your number one, number two, and maybe there's a trick in number three. So rather than doing the number three instruction, you can continue past where most people would do it. And you see a sign on the telephone pole. You may have seen those kinds of signs. In the early 70s, there used to be pie plates, you know, the white pie plates you would put into a picnic. And someone had a letter number combination on them. And then you would write from the pie plate, it would have like A1, and next to your score sheet, next to the letter A, you would write one, right? That would give you a scoring component. 
And then there was a set of instructions corresponding to one to put you back on course, such that people that got the trick or didn't get the trick eventually are running the same course. And so some people say a rally is the longest distance between two points, right? So you're trying to find tricks or traps typically, and these kinds of rallies take you off the main course, find the, the sign, and then you're put back on course. And there are layers of instructions. Um, some are very simple and some are very complex. Like a simple one might be to turn uh, our first op. Someone may say our first op, our meaning turn to the right. And some people would just turn right because they'll say, well, I think if someone wrote that to me in English, op might be opportunity, so I'll just turn right. Other people may say, op, op isn't defined. Let me go past where most people would do the op to turn right and they would find that sign. And then there were other much more complex type gimmicks. And hence there were different classes of people. You know, first timers could run all the way up to up to experts. So yeah, when you get into the, the senior or the expert class, like I am, you might also write these events or put them on, right? So we'll um, take a lot of our experience and write one of these rallies. And they're really not time-based, if you will. The object is kind of to go slow and, and take your time and really read the instructions carefully. I've written a number of these rallies and we often have a theme to them. Like I did one a few uh, last month called Rally Noir. It's kind of a tribute to film noir. So we have a little scene to make the rally a little more fun. So it's my limited understanding that some types of gimmicks might include like wordplay or deliberate misspellings. Yeah. Some things might be bonuses, like turn right at a street name for famous university. And as you're driving along, you might come to a Harvard Street, a Yale Street. Another more tricky one might be to turn right at a stop, and we define a stop sign. Let's say we said it's a yellow and red sign, which controls your progress, say, through an intersection. So an obvious choice would be a stop sign, as we know it, right? In other cases, a sign that says yield fits that definition, right? If we just say it's a red and white sign that controls your progress, well, a yield sign fits that definition. If you remember a yield sign, at least in California, it's three-sided and has the word yield on it with a, a red outline on a white sign. I think I read one example in here that said, turn right when you see an angry fellow. And I think the example was maybe a street was called Crossman, Crossman. Right, right. <laughs> right. So wordplay yeah. and that kind of thing. Given the types of gimmicks ranging from simple to layered and complex, what kind of people tend to gravitate toward these rallies? I mean, I have an idea, but I'm just wondering if, you know, like, what are they like in general terms? Right. So I'm going to start with today. It's a pretty wide cross-section. I think the main unifying factor is people like puzzles and they like getting out of the house. So there are families, believe it or not, that do that, husband, wife, and, and their kids. Uh, there's one group recently, is a father and his son. The son started when he was in elementary school, he's in college now. You see couples, right, it's a good way to get to a divorce. People argue over the interpretation <laughs> of gimmicks. Um, I rally with, with a buddy of mine. Some people actually run solo. Typically in these events, you have what we call a driver and a navigator. Okay. And some people do both parts. They run it solo. And that's very difficult. I one time ran a red light inadvertently doing that. I wasn't paying attention. So that could be a little dangerous. So yeah, it's really hard kind of to find that unifying 
kind of type of person other than they like puzzles, getting out of the house. Some people like just like cars and, and, and touring. So they like getting out and then driving their cars around. Sure. Now, if you go back to, to the early 70s, that was the time when the boomers like me were growing up. Cars represented freedom. It was a way to, you know, to get out of the house, do something interesting. There were a lot of people our age doing it. In the early 70s, people were largely from 16 to 24, 25. There could be several hundred cars in the event. Again, mostly young. So I think that contributed to why there were just in the early 70s so many of these events. Right in the San Francisco area alone, there were uh, five places, usually shopping centers, like uh, Sun Valley Mall, Stanford Shopping Center, where people would, would start. And it would be five different locations every Friday and Saturday night. And so I, I think the profile has changed over the years, but Puzzles is the mostly the kind of unifying scene. Speaking of rally clubs back then, what, if anything, do you know about BARF, the Bay Area Rally Force? I looked around. I don't remember a club called BARF. Um, there just were a lot of clubs. And clubs could be just a loose association of people. A lot of clubs put on events, but a lot of times it was just people that might say, we're the gun high school drinking club or something like that. Um, I don't remember BARF, but I, based on a little bit of evidence, it sounded like they, they put on rallies or, or ran here in the South Bay, at least part of the time, at San Jose Park Gym. And that was a defunct shopping center on North First Street near San Jose Airport. Okay. And there were some events, for example, that were a little bit different than the, the Course Marker Rally. That was an overnight event that was popular that went from Santa Barbara to Las Vegas. Oh, wow. And the tricks were scored a little bit differently than signs on a post. But at its essence were instructions to get you from point A to point B. And you kind of had to find the trick okay. in the instructions. Would it make sense to you if somebody that had, like, Navy signals training would be attracted to this kind of event? Like, uh, the Navy has nautical flags and, you know, it's used throughout the nautical space anyway. Like, this flag symbol means this, and there's a flag for each letter of the phonetic alphabet, right? There's flags for each number, zero through nine, and each flag has its own meaning. So it's kind of a complex language in and of itself. And as you know, Lance Jeffrey Voss, who we're looking into, he had that kind of training. He also liked board games. And I heard once or read somewhere that these kind of gimmick rallies were compared to a board game where the route is the board and your car is the game piece. Is that an apt description? Yep, it is. And based upon how you describe what he did in the Navy, that might be the typical person to run this because once you've run a few, there's, there is kind of a code. In other words, you know how to read the instructions and look for certain types of tricks. Okay. And so someone that has this kind of training might, might find these intriguing, for sure. In the article you had mentioned to me, you said there's an interesting reference about a rallyist in the BARF club. And it had to do with the role of the navigator. I'll just read it, and I'll still have a link to this article on our website. And I just kind of want to get your take on this. It said, one Halloween rally had the checkpoints at cemeteries and the navigators were required to make their way through the headstones. Another event had a checkpoint at a secluded location complete with a guy in a gorilla suit surprising the unsuspecting navigators. It goes on to say, perhaps the composition of the typical team is why there were more starters than finishers. It is quite possible that somewhere along the route, priorities would shift from competition to something else. This, of course, is pure conjecture, but one does wonder about Team Barf. 
Team Barf used to compete out of San Jose and consisted of the same guy with a different female navigator, usually very attractive for each rally. And I found that passage really fascinating for a lot of reasons, but I would need your help a little bit to kind of navigate the nuances of that. Are you picking up on, you know, you said that was interesting. Like, uh, I think it was Bob Schott that wrote this article. Yeah. I, it feels like... If I were in the know more, I would understand kind of what he was getting at. One has to wonder about Barf. Like, what is he getting at there, do you think? Was that unusual, or what? why was it unusual? Well, you know, when, when you go on a car rally, at least in that time, certainly you might have gone with your girlfriend. But it sounds like this, for this guy, uh, whoever he was talking about, it was a date, sort of a date night, and he always had a different female companion and maybe... They started the rally, and rather than finish the rally, they went off and, you know, had an amorous evening is kind of what he was probably getting at. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, all right. So I didn't know if it was if it was as simple as that, right? Like, they went off to have, you know, alone time, or you had mentioned priorities of instructions, and I didn't know if that's what he meant, like different priorities. And I thought it was interesting because it was on our website, and I ran across it, and that reference to Barf sort of stood out because that's what you were looking for. Right. And some other people had been inquiring in the club asking about Jeff Voss and uh, Club Barf. And so when I read that, it was completely unrelated to those inquiries. This was just something Bob had remembered. Now, Bob passed away a couple of years ago. I could ask him more about that if you were alive. Gotcha. But uh, yeah, I thought it was sort of interesting given what you were looking at. And then there was a reference to it, which I don't, in an eerie way, had sort of a resemblance to what might have been going on with this guy. So there's a lot of what Chris had to say that I find very interesting. But before I get into all of that, I want to direct you to the document that outlines gimmick rallies so you can see for yourself just how complex these events are. You can find a link to this guide on our website, snakeriverkiller.com, under resources, articles, and links. You can also find the article by Bob Schott that mentions Barf specifically. And to that point, Barf was evidently unusual enough for Bob Schott to have included it in his article, even if it were in a wink-wink sort of way. But it stood out to Chris too, because what better way to entice a pretty woman into your car only to go off course somewhere and never actually end the rally? Oh, and by the way, gimmick rallies typically begin in a shopping plaza parking lots, as Chris had said, and all of them have always ended in the same places, pizzerias. You know, like the Red Baron, for instance. And also from my conversation with Chris, I learned that the common denominator for all people who enter these gimmick rallies is that they are puzzle, riddle, and board game lovers of the first order. That a gimmick rally is essentially an outdoor board game where the map is the game board and the car is the game piece. That gimmick rallies rely on trickery and the cunning to outwit said trickery that the instructions for these events are multi-layered and complex, that the tricks themselves entail wordplay, combinations of letters and numbers, and deliberate misspellings. And on this latter detail, I want to pump the brakes a moment because Marianne White had mentioned to me that she suspected the Zodiac misspellings were deliberate evasion strategies. And this is something author Robert Graysmith agrees with, noting in his book how the Zodiac had, quote, an extremely good understanding of punctuation but fakes poor spelling, end quote. Of course, many of these evasive fake spellings also can be seen as wordplay. 
in the Zodiac letter that confesses to Paul Stein's murder, the killer not only mentions, quote, road races, end quote, but he misspelled motorcycles by inserting the letter I where the Y should be, which gives you the word sickles, a misspelled homophone of sickle or a crescent-shaped knife. But it also connotes icicle as in a sharp formation of frozen water. Oh, and sidebar, I think it's worth pointing out here an obvious thing, and that is Lance's name. A lance is a sharp, spear-like sword medieval knights used to dismount enemies in battle. And in one source I checked, the family name Voss comes from Vos, as in fox, as in someone who is sly or clever. One other fake misspelling occurs in a Halloween card believed to have been sent by the Zodiac just over a month after the disappearance of Donna Lass. In that card, the Zodiac misspells paradise by inserting the letter C where there should be an S. Dice, D-I-C-E, can refer to either the plural noun of gaming dice, wherein the singular is die, or the verb to dice as in to cut with a knife. The word also contains ice as in frozen water. And one thing we know about the Zodiac is that he liked games and used the word game itself frequently in his letters, and that word shows up in the Halloween card as well, which you can find on our website under stakeriverkiller.com under resources clues. Oh, and by the by, that Halloween card is dated October 27, 1970, 11 years to the day before the Lewiston Morning Tribune article about Voss being an unemployed Asotan mechanic. Likely a coincidence, but I would be remiss if I didn't at least point that out. Given everything I learned from Chris about gimmick rallies, I want to now look at the Sierra postcard in the Donna Lass case in the context of a gimmick rally, because there is a way in which you can see the riddles and directional puzzles here in this card as akin to the kind of directional instructions given in a gimmick rally. In fact, when the family of Donna Lass put out a reward poster for more information on her abduction, they included a short cipher from the Zodiac. While there are competing theories about the solution or potential solutions to this cipher, one solution given to the South Lake Tahoe Police Department by a Lauren Lee Swearingen essentially breaks it down into a radically complex set of driving instructions. I reached out to Swearingen to invite him on the show, but I haven't heard back, so I'll keep you posted on that. And here I'm also reminded that in his Mount Diablo letter, the Zodiac went out of his way to include a Phillips 66 roadmap which, given the nature of gimmick rallies, kind of makes sense contextually. Anyway, all of this is to say that when Gloria told me at the very beginning of my investigation that Lance speaks in riddles, I think you have to look no further than the gimmick rallies as proof positive that his mind is drawn to games, puzzles, riddles, word plays, and tricks. And again, you can find images of the barf insignia as well as a reunion photo of Lance with some of his barf friends at our website snakeriverkiller.com under resources, clues, and case photos. Lastly, I want to wrap up on one more Zodiac connection. In 1974, the San Francisco Chronicle received yet another letter believed to have been sent from the Zodiac in which he refers to himself as the Red Phantom. Quote, Red with rage. End quote. The letter was sent from San Rafael on July 8, 1974. It was addressed to the editor and insisted that the paper cut their Count Marco column, an outrageously misogynistic advice column by Marco Spinelli to women. For me, the most curious part about the letter is the introduction of the new moniker, Red Phantom. Because the Zodiac was consistently referencing the theater, plays, and films, Robert Graysmith suggested in his book that the Red Phantom could be linked to the Phantom of the Opera, where in one scene, the Phantom dresses in a red cape as Red Death at a costume ball. 
Red Death is itself a reference to the 1842 short story The Mask of the Red Death by Edgar Allan Poe. The only film with a red phantom in it was currently being shown at a silent film palace, a theater with a domed ceiling decorated with a gigantic design of the Zodiac. This film was The Phantom of the Opera, 1924, starring Lon Chaney, end quote. Now, stepping away from the Zodiac cases and this letter for a moment, let's look back at the cases connected to Lance. I wanted to know if there were ways in which the Phantom of the Opera linked to these cases or to Lance himself, so I looked into it. As it happens, there are parallels. For instance, the heroine of the Phantom of the Opera is named Christine. Several listeners have messaged me asking me if there was any significance to several of the victims having similar names such as Christina White, Kristen David, or Christina Nelson. And to be honest, I still don't know if there is any significance to that or not, but I'm just mentioning it here because in the play, the Phantom becomes obsessed with Christine, a failed singer who ended up performing in the theater in which he dwelled. Those familiar with the opera will know that Christine's mother died when she was six. Lance's mother, Jane Nelson, was about five when her mother died. Furthermore, Lance told people his mother was a singer. I also have to pause on the same last names of Nelson, Lance's mother's maiden name, and Christina Nelson, just to put some light on that for a minute. From the opera, we know that Christine was from Sweden. Jane's parents were from Norway. In one translation of the opera, Christine was said to have been 15 years old, an age between that of Christina White and Antoinette and Nino. But this translation was incorrect because Christine was actually 21, an age closer to Christina Nelson, Brandy Miller, and Kristen David, young women who were associated with the Civic Theater. So there are parallels there. And what I find fascinating is that there are double parallels. In other words, Christine can be seen both as a mother figure and a victim figure. And I'm beginning to see Lance's mother more and more as a central figure in these cases. And more on that at another time. Several weeks ago, I received an email from a listener who wishes to remain anonymous. This listener knew Lance from the time they both performed in the Washington State University's Wind Symphony back in the late 1980s. Yeah, you got that right. Lance Voss was, for a brief spell, a student at Washington State University and was a member of the Wind Symphony, a musical ensemble comprised mostly of undergraduate students and this rando 40-year-old guy. Anyway, this person told me that Lance had been talking up his dome houses to everyone in the Wind Symphony, and he was bragging about his new stereo system and the acoustics of the dome home. And he kept going on and on about how everyone in the symphony should come down to the valley for a spring barbecue and check out his place. This person also told me that everyone in the symphony thought Lance was weird, but because he wouldn't shut up about having this barbecue, they all kind of felt strangely obligated to go down. And so they did, even though it's about 60 miles round trip. I asked if Lance's wife was home, and this person said no. So that was one thing. Then I asked this person if anything struck them as unusual about the barbecue, and they said yes. One thing really stood out. When the barbecue started, and as people were milling about, there was no music playing. Then suddenly Lance makes this great show of putting an album on his turntable and then cranking up the volume. What was the record, I asked, thinking, you know, late 80s. It could be anything from Talking Heads, The Cars, Lionel Richie, The Bangles, Blondie. No, it wasn't anything like that. The album Lance put on the turntable was, you guessed it, The Phantom of the Opera. And he played it all through the party at high volume, setting everyone on edge. I have to wonder here for a minute, was Lance toying with this captive group of students, deliberately trying to make them uncomfortable, 
as if they were pawns in some sort of imaginary game of his? I just don't know. The whole thing is just strange and slightly off. As I've previously mentioned, the Zodiac frequently used the word game in his letters, and in one specifically he wrote, quote, I like killing people because it is so much fun. It is more fun than killing wild game in the forest because man is the most dangerous animal of all to kill. End quote. It is largely believed that this quote is a direct reference to the 1924 short story by Richard Connell titled The Most Dangerous Game. Called the most popular short story ever written in the English language, this story centers on a big game hunter named Rainsford who falls overboard from a yacht somewhere in the Caribbean and who then washes up on an island. The island, he learns, is owned and ruled by an eccentric hunter named General Zaroff and his brutish manservant, Ivan. Over the course of that first evening on the island, Rainsford learns that Zaroff, long bored of hunting big game, hunts humans instead. Horrified, Rainsford says, quote, General Zaroff, what you speak of is murder, end quote. To which Zaroff says, quote, I refuse to believe that so modern and civilized young man as you seem to be harbors romantic ideas about the value of human life, end quote. I mention this story for several reasons. First, because the Zodiac was almost certainly referring to it in his letters. Second, because there are so many parallels between this story and elements of the Zodiac cases that it has to be looked at. And these same parallels jibe with cases related to Lance as well. And third, if you've read the story, you can see how it would appeal to someone who harbored psychopathic thoughts, how they might see General Zaroff, an otherwise chivalrous, well-educated gentleman who is in fact a serial killer and sadist, as a hero and not a villain. Given the massive popularity of the story, I have no doubt in my mind that Lance and or the Zodiac would have read the story, especially given the numerous details in it that I find clearly resonant with these cases. Some of the details or parallels are obvious, while others aren't as much. The story, for instance, begins on a yacht powered by sailors. So from the outset, we have links to sailors and seagoing vessels and water. Before he fell overboard, Rainsford was speaking with his companion, Whitney, another big game hunter. The two of them were going to hunt jaguars. When I read that, it occurred to me that jaguar is also a type of sporty car, the company for which was founded in 1922, two years before the publication of the story. Not that I can give a lot of weight to that, but then I noticed the protagonist's name, Rains Ford water and car or water car a boat or a ship is essentially a water car also the verb ford as in to ford means to cross a body of water this name struck me as interesting because it's not very common in fact when you google rainsford your returns are almost exclusively references to the story itself rainsford's first name is singer also unusual which calls to mind a singer perhaps like christine in the phantom of the opera Twice in the story, there are references to operas, one being Madame Butterfly, which, like the Mikado, is set in Japan. Both Zaroff and Rainsford served in the military during wars. It is believed the Zodiac may have been a Navy man, and we know that Lance was in Vietnam until he was ousted. General Zaroff's island is called Ship Trap Island, and to lure unwitting sailors off course, he placed lights at the island's edge at night, indicating to sailors the presence of a channel but the lights were a trick, a false signal, or gimmick if you will. Thinking they were navigating safely through a channel, the unsuspecting sailors would hit a series of razor-sharp rocks marooning them into his death trap. 
After capturing the shipwreck crew members, whom Zaroff calls pupils, he holds them captive in his cellar or basement, which he calls his training school. And here I'll just underscore those terms, pupils, school, basement, through lines. Inevitably, Rainsford learns that he himself will be hunted by General Zaroff. The manservant Ivan gives Rainsford a costume of hunting clothes and a, quote, leather sheath and a long-bladed hunting knife, end quote. When explaining the, quote, quote, game to Rainsford, General Zaroff says, you'll find this game worth playing, your brain against mine. It's like outdoor chess, end quote. Yeah, outdoor chess, where the island is the game board and the men are the game pieces. While Rainsford does have the long hunting knife, Zaroff has a pistol and a pack of dogs, hounds in particular. Without giving too much away, I will say that General Zaroff gives Rainsford a head start. Rainsford's first thought was to just run to, quote, put distance between himself and Zaroff, end quote. But where was he to run to? The author writes, quote, he was in a picture with a frame of water and his operations clearly must take place within that frame. End quote. Let me repeat that phrase one more time. He was in a picture with a frame of water. All of his operations had to take place within the frame of water. To that end, Rainsford had to slow down and think. He had to be cunning. He had to use his mind to win the game. And then he had a plan. Quote, I will give him a trail to follow, muttered Rainsford, as he struck off from the rude path he had been following into the trackless wilderness. He executed a series of intricate loops. He doubled his trail again and again, recalling the lore of the fox hunt and all the dodges of the fox, end quote. Rainsford tried to create as intricate and complex of a course or trail as he could to try to trick General Zaroff. After finishing his work, Rainsford felt satisfied. The author writes, quote, Even so zealous a hunter as General Zaroff could not trace him there, Rainsford told himself. Only the devil himself could follow that complicated trail through the jungle after dark, but perhaps the general was the devil, end quote. Indeed, the general may have been a devil because he saw right through Rainsford's gimmicks. But instead of killing him on the spot, he pretended to be fooled by the supposedly complex trail, trying to trick Rainsford into believing he was safe when he wasn't. Then Rainsford realized in horror that he had underestimated Zaroff. Later, Rainsford digs a deep pit and augurs several sharp spears into the bottom of the pit with the sharp ends pointing up. After covering his Burmese tiger pit with branches and brush, he waited for the general to fall into his death trap. Soon, he heard branches snap and a shrieking sound. But it wasn't Zaroff. It was instead one of the general's finest hounds. Rainsford could see Zaroff from his hiding spot, and the general was sweeping the jungle foliage with his flashlight. And while I won't give away how the story ends or who, if anyone, wins the game, I will say that Zaroff's final words are those of someone who sword fights or fences. He says, on guard, Rainsford. Yeah, on guard. In many ways, I could see how the most dangerous game for Lance Again, I have no doubt whatsoever that he read this story. It's long been required reading in public schools how this story could be a kind of origin story. The framework of a large and lifelong fantasy wherein he played the hunter. But at the core of this story lies a certain inevitability. The hunter eventually becomes the hunted. But I doubt that's part of Lance's fantasy. Or maybe it is. For serial killers, fantasy is a big deal. 
And even if you take away all the cases connected to Lance Voss, we can say with certainty that fantasy is a big deal to him. I mean, what is acting but fantasy staged before an audience? What is set designing but giving physical shape and form to fantasy? What is dressing up in medieval garb and going to renaissance fairs but impromptu group fantasy or cosplay? What is Dungeons and Dragons but a fantasy role-playing game? And what is collecting D&D figurines but surrounding oneself with totems of a dark fantasy? I mention fantasy here because in the end pages of Robert Graysmith's book Zodiac, he includes a psychological profile of the Zodiac. These are among the traits the Zodiac is believed to possess. Quote, Paranoid delusions of grandeur. Psychotic. Sexual sadist. You will find that the Zodiac probably tortured small animals as a child, had a domineering mother, weak or absent father, strong fantasy life, confusion between violence and love, is the type of person who would be a police groupie, carry police equipment in his car, collect weapons and implements of torture, end quote. Now let me ask you something. Does any of that sound familiar? Under delusions of grandeur, we have Lance Voss who wanted everyone to believe he was this intellectual when in reality he failed the 10th grade and dropped out of high school in the 11th grade. He still parades around VFW halls and events like he was this great sailor in the Navy when in fact he was anything but. And while I will pass over psychotic and sexual sadist for the moment and the question of whether or not he tortured animals as a child, we do know for a fact that his father died when Lance was 10 months old. And Lance's mother, like I said, is becoming far more interesting as we move through these cases. And as I have just established, Lance has led and continues to lead an extensive fantasy life. We also know that Lance is himself a kind of police groupie. Recall how he was the first person at the sheriff's office to volunteer in the search for Christina White? Recall too how he led the convoy of police vehicles on his Harley when Clint was supposedly missing. And although we don't know what Lance carried in his car, in fact Clint told me that Lance would never let anybody drive his cars, that he was adamant about it, we do know that when he was arrested for breaking into a mortuary, he was carrying a flashlight, camera, and a knife. We know that he collects swords and knives as evidenced by the mortuary knife, the custom-made dagger he took to renaissance fairs, and the sword his mother brought back from Japan. So yeah, just in that list of knowns, he fits the bill to a T. Graysmith's profile continues that this kind of person, quote, is calm in a crisis, plans carefully, may rehearse crimes, enjoys taunting the police, is secretive and guarded in his dealings with the world. Zodiac is an imitative person, not inventive. Everything he's done, he has either seen or found written down somewhere, end quote. The psychological profile goes on, and I think it's worth examining, but I will warn you now that parts of it are both disturbing and graphic in both sexual and violent contexts. The person who fits this profile, quote, plans ahead, cuts up clothesline beforehand, is the type of killer who masturbates after each attack, kills at close range because he wants his victims to see him. Usually this type of person is a voyeur or prowler, will repeat his crimes, most often highly intelligent, strong, he is incurable, he feels no remorse, he will often choose victims with specific occupations, all Zodiac victims, even Stein, were students, he will keep souvenirs, he will stab victims until he achieves orgasm, will remember in great detail the particulars of the murders, these types are limited or incapable of forming normal adult relationships, 
the alternatives are sex with dead bodies or killing for sexual satisfaction, another alternative is sex with children. This type of individual has a need to be powerful. They are skillful and charming liars, may even move to a state that has the death penalty which they unconsciously desire. Fantasy of killing mother. He takes great pains in appearing normal and evading capture. End quote. Now, as dark and as disturbing as that brief profile is, I think you can see why I've called your attention to it. Because many, if not all, of these traits track with what we know and or suspect about Lance Voss. But I want to drill down a bit on a few of these traits, as I think they're worth paying a little bit more attention to. First, these type of people are usually voyeurs or prowlers. Now, all we need to do is point to Lance's arrest record to see how this trait applies. In fact, in his interview with the Lewiston police, he said, quote, somebody reported a prowler, end quote. Also this, several of Lance's jobs entailed routes, as in the route he drove for Music City and possibly Frito-Lay, and later in North Carolina where he worked as a postal worker and had a route. Such jobs would give a voyeur all kinds of opportunities without necessarily arousing suspicion. Second, to the trait of being highly intelligent. Despite his lackluster academic background, we do know from people who knew Lance that he is intelligent, possibly highly intelligent. Third, he will keep souvenirs. Now, we don't know definitively if A, Lance is in fact guilty of these crimes, and B, whether he kept trophies from the victims to which he has been linked. We do know that items, particularly victims' clothing, have gone missing from nearly all of the victims, and could be trophies. Fourth, he will remember in great detail the particulars of the murders. Again, Lance is only a person of interest at this moment, but if we take all the elements and particulars of the Diane Taylor case, for instance, everything from method of death, sexual trauma, missing clothing, association with water, the likelihood of Lance appearing in the newspaper near the crime scene, these would have been among the particulars her assailant would have had seared into his mind, as I've alluded to before. Fifth, these types are limited or incapable of forming normal adult relationships. Alternatives include sex with dead bodies, killing for sexual satisfaction, and or sex with children. While we can speculate on the possibilities of killing for sexual satisfaction or pedophilia, we do know for a fact that, well, he was arrested for breaking into a funeral home housing the body of a 17-year-old dead girl. Sixth, skillful and charming liars. If you go back and look at his convoluted explanation for his time in the Civic Theater, for instance, and how I broke down his timeline, essentially exposing the myriad impossibilities of his narrative, well, we can see the web of lies he was spinning. Same with his arrest. Also, I found the added bit about moving to a state with a death penalty fascinating. The state of Idaho reinstated the death penalty in 1973, which made national news. Three years later, Lance moved to the Boise area. Not that his move hinged on that, but it's something to consider. Seventh, fantasy of killing mother. Now this one is fascinating to me. Again, I come back to the Phantom of the Opera and its heroine Christine, a character we can either view as victim figure or mother figure or both. Because we know that the Civic Theater is a crime scene, it's not difficult to draw a line from Christina Nelson to both Christine in the Phantom of the Opera and his mother Jane Nelson. I mean, the name Christina Nelson is nearly an exact matchup of the character's first name and his mother's last name. We also know that Lance and his mother had an unusually close relationship, and that whenever and wherever Lance moved, his mother followed. Eighth, takes great pains to appear normal. 
Well, we know that Lance always went out of his way to appear normal. By writing letters to the editor on civic matters, by playing the role of the concerned citizen, by getting involved in scouts, by being involved in the community theater and playing the French horn in music ensembles, and by running for city council three months after Kristen David's murder. Oh, by the way, he lost the election, having only garnered 13 votes. That drive to appear normal in all exterior senses while nurturing dark fantasies internally, that's a concept of duality I wanted to talk with Marianne White about, but our schedules haven't worked out to jump on a call for this episode, so I did the next best thing. I turned to her dissertation, which is titled A Facade of Normalcy, An Exploration into the Serial Murderer's Duplicitous Lifestyle. Discussing a sample set of serial murderers, Marianne wrote, quote, a strong pattern of positive reinforcement was identified regarding fantasy and the murderous actions of the offenders. Some of the sexual or violent fantasy motivated many of the serial murderers, and through committing their crimes, they were able to act out their fantasies, making them a reality." End quote. Marianne then quotes another scholar who wrote how one serial killer was, quote, living in a fantasy world of his own creation. The killer talked on and on about the various fantasy roles that he had envisioned himself in over the years. They ran the gamut from being President of the United States to being lead singer of The Doors or The Beatles to leading the Cleveland Browns to the Super Bowl. All of the roles were linked together by the themes of power, prestige, influence, and grandiosity." End quote. Finally, Marianne writes, quote, both aspects of the serial murderer's duplicitous lifestyles, that is, the conventional lifestyle and the criminal lifestyle, were often reinforced by the rewards they perceived or received after their behaviors. Their conventional lifestyles were frequently reinforced by the fear of losing their spouses or families, and on the other hand, their criminal lifestyles were reinforced by the successful completion of fantasy, end quote. So, we can see that fantasy does play a central role, or can play a central role, in a serial killer's interior world, in the psyche, while at the same time the killer plays the role of the well-adjusted person externally. And their background, particularly any kind of education or training or skills they have learned, all of those components play vital roles as well. To that point, Graysmith in Zodiac lists the possible types of training Zodiac may have had. Among the areas listed, we find, quote, explosive devices, cryptography, charts and terminology used in conjunction with a compass, knowledge of Gilbert and Sullivan's Mikado, nose car engines, chemistry, may have access to a computer, knowledge of ancient cults, movie fanatics such as Badlands, The Exorcist, or The Most Dangerous Game, knowledge of disguise, nose drafting, training with guns, sews well, probably Navy background, end quote. So that's a list of training and skills that could possibly be linked to the Zodiac. But what skill sets in that list could be applied to Lance? Well, let's start at the top. Explosive devices. What do we know? We know that while serving in Vietnam, Lance was what Roger Korth called a bomb roller, meaning he was one of the guys whose sole job was to move, load, offload, and transfer explosives from his ammunition ship to aircraft carriers and other warships. Certainly, he would have learned the basics of what makes a bomb a bomb, either during his training or while in active duty, or both. He was literally surrounded by explosives for three years, day in and day out. But there's another thing you should know, and this one thing caught my attention a while back. 
On New Year's Eve of 1986, four years after the Civic Theater 3 cases, and while everyone in Lewiston was getting ready to ring in the new year, something terrifying happened. A sudden explosion ripped through a building in Lewiston's downtown, lighting up the sky with fire and debris. From all that I can discern, no one that I'm aware of was harmed in this sudden explosion. Later, investigators suspected the explosion came from a bomb. Why do I mention this explosion here? Because the building that exploded was none other than the Red Baron Pizzeria. The details on the explosion are vague, and I'm still looking into it, because it could have been something as simple as a gas leak, and only eyebrow-raising because of the role that place played in the Civic Theater cases. You can see a Facebook post from the Lewiston Historical Society discussing the explosion on our website, snakeriverkiller.com, under resources clues. Now look, in all likelihood, the explosion probably has nothing to do with Lance or the cases. Besides, if the perpetrator of the Civic Three murders wanted to blow up a building to get rid of evidence or make a statement or whatever, I think they would take down the theater itself and not the adjacent Red Baron. But I thought I would call that event to your attention all the same. In terms of possible training and skill sets the Zodiac and or Lance may have had, we've talked a bit about cryptography as it relates to Lance's time in the Navy and more obliquely as it pertains to the gimmick rallies and classified ads. And this leads into the next category of training mentioned, charts and terminology used in conjunction with a compass. Now this could easily serve as a brief description of gimmick rallies, which entail charts, rules, specific terminology, codes, and all in conjunction with a compass, maps, or directional notations. The mention of Gilbert and Sullivan's Mikado is central to the Zodiac letters, and while it doesn't appear that Lance was in that particular show, his deep interest in theater and operas, coupled with the fact that he was later in Gilbert and Sullivan's Pirates of Penzance, made clear to me anyway that he would have known of the Mikado without a doubt. Now next on the list of training the Zodiac was believed to have had was knowledge of car engines. During the reign of the Zodiac murders, Lance, who lived on Cadillac Drive in San Jose, was working at Auto City and worked on foreign cars. He later worked on motorcycles and was identified years later by the Lewiston Morning Tribune as, quote, an unemployed Asotan mechanic, end quote, when he decided to run for city council three months after the murder of Kristen David. Chemistry appears on the training list as well. While attending West Valley Junior College in 1966 to 1970, Lance took a chemistry class. Now, whether or not he was proficient in that subject, I don't know, because I don't have access to his grades. Still, I would count a class in chemistry as definitely a form of training. It was also thought that the Zodiac may have had access to a computer. Again, as a student at West Valley Junior College, Lance took a class called Computer Automation, and it's highly likely that he would have had access to a rudimentary computer through the college and that class. Appearing next in the litany of potential training is this, knowledge of ancient cults. Now, from the very beginning of my investigation, cults are one of those things that just keep coming up repeatedly. Recall what Paul said, though, in episode six pertaining to Lance and knowledge of cults. Clint went on to say that a lot of the details about this cult activity going on, that these cults like to break into churches, they like to hang the cross upside down, they like to do all of their nefarious uh, activities in these churches. And this information was all given to him uh, from Lance. And Clint's only explanation was that, you know, he, Lance must have studied these things 
Beyond the knowledge of cults, the Zodiac was believed to be a movie fanatic, gravitating toward films like Badlands and The Exorcist and The Most Dangerous Game. Although I have no definitive proof, I have been told by anonymous family members that Lance liked and likes horror movies. The only movie I can link him to, of course, is John Carpenter's horror film The Fog, which Lance claims to have watched at the Red Baron. But, as I have mentioned earlier on this show, I don't believe he watched The Fog at the Red Baron, though he may have watched it elsewhere and at another time. The Zodiac had knowledge of disguise, as evidenced by his executioner's hood. He also stipulated in one letter that he would begin changing his appearance as well as his M.O. Given Lance's background in theater, costumes, and his fondness for renaissance fairs, I would say that Lance clearly has a knowledge of disguise. Graysmith further notes that in his list, the Zodiac may have had training in drafting or technical drawing, as in drawing architectural plans. When it comes to Lance, we know that he built two geodesic dome houses, which would have entailed considerable complex technical drawing. In fact, Lance once posted on a Google Groups forum that, quote, even though I am not a contractor and had no previous home building experience, I modified the original dome house drawings and did much of the construction myself, end quote. You can find a screenshot of this post on our website, snakeriverkiller.com, under resources documents. And speaking of the dome homes, Sam recently found an ad Lance had placed that caught our attention. In January of 1985, Lance was selling plans on how to make geodesic dome homes. Two things from the ad stood out to both Sam and I as we were examining it. First, the parent company for whom Lance was selling the plans was based in Riverside, California, the location of Sherry Jo Bates' murder. And second, Lance had the letter O in the word dome look like the symbol of the Zodiac, and it matches a window in Lance's main dome house exactly. You can see pictures of this ad, the dome homes, and the Zodiac symbols that match his drawing in the ad on our website under resources, case photos, and clues. Graysmith includes training with guns, and for obvious reasons, as the Zodiac shot and killed several victims. Lance would have received small arms training in boot camp, and as you will see, he belonged to gun clubs. In fact, recently, there was an individual who posted on the Facebook page Gloria has set up for these cases, saying that they had taken a gun class from Lance. But while we were reaching out to this person for further comment, they deleted the post and went dark. I'm guessing because they live in the same area as Lance does now, they probably got spooked and do not want to be targeted, which I totally get. And finally, the last two elements on this list comport with what we know about the Zodiac and Lance, and that's the ability to sew and the Navy background. Lance was a gifted leather worker, had time around costumes in theater, and of course he spent three years in the Navy. So taking a step back, you have multiple points of agreement between the profile markers in the Zodiac cases and those connected to Lance Voss. Likewise, you have multiple points of agreement in training and skill sets between the Zodiac and Lance Voss. But what about specific behaviors that arise out of the profile markers and that training? Are there parallel behaviors or actions between Zodiac and Lance that we could look at? That is a question that has been at the back of my mind for some time, so I dug a little deeper. In Zodiac, Graysmith points out that on March 13, 1970, seven days before the vernal equinox, a 24-year-old woman was abducted from the Coronado Inn in Vallejo, where Darlene Farron used to go dancing. Farron, you will recall, was parked at Blue Rock Springs with Mike Mugeau when she was shot to death. 
Gray Smith writes, quote, One year to the day that the abducted woman's body was discovered, Zodiac mailed the Chronicle a postcard, end quote. That postcard was the Lake Tahoe Peak Through the Pines postcard that is believed to be tied to the disappearance of Donna Lass. Now, does that behavior of sending correspondence to the paper on the anniversary of a body being found sound familiar? Well, it should. Think back to the Kristen David murder. Because not only did Kristen David go missing five days before the summer solstice, but Lance's found German Shepherd classified ad appeared on the one-year anniversary of Kristen David's remains being found. In other words, Lance's behavior mirrors almost exactly that of the Zodiac. And as Sam has discovered recently, that isn't the only time Lance sent in correspondence on the anniversary of Kristen David's murder, as you will soon see, so put a pin in that. For now, I want to circle back to the woman that was abducted from the Coronado Inn in Vallejo, the place where Darlene Farron used to go dancing. A week after the young woman was abducted, on March 21, 1970, her body was found near Lakeport, California. Oddities about her death abound. First, she was found down an embankment on a dry slope in some underbrush, reminiscent of Brandy Miller and Christina Nelson. Cause of death wasn't readily clear, but as in the case of Antoinette and Nino, this woman's clothing was completely missing. In fact, the only personal item of hers that was recovered was a ring found near her body. It also appeared that she was killed somewhere else and then dumped at this location, again reminiscent of Brandy Miller and Christina Nelson. The police learned through the autopsy that she had sand, tiny pebbles, and water in her lungs, meaning that she, like Antoinette and Nino, had been drowned. In an article I found in the Santa Rosa Press Democrat under the headline, Lake Body Identified, it reads, quote, Sheriff Anderson said he is still working the case as a murder and indicated that there has been no change in evidence from the autopsy showing from sand and gravel found in her lungs that she had been immersed in water several hours prior to or after her death, end quote. Another article noted, quote, the probable cause of death is drowning, although the body was found on a dry hillside with only the victim's ring nearby, end quote. Once again, like the other Zodiac killings and like many of those connected to Lance, this young woman's death is linked directly to a body of water in two ways. First, by the likelihood of drowning, but then by having her body be found near Lakeport, California. So why do I bring up this case here? Because there appear to me to be clear and alarming parallels between this case and some of those connected to Lance Voss, and they go way beyond the absence of clothing, the apparent drowning, and the disposal of the body down an embankment. Indeed, I mention this case here because this young woman's name was Marie Antoinette Ancy. When I saw her name, I double-checked my notes to see what Antoinette Anino's middle name was, and then it hit me. Her full name is Antoinette Marie Anino. So you have two women with nearly identical names, Marie Antoinette Ancy and Antoinette Marie Anino, both with last names beginning with A-N, who drowned under mysterious circumstances two years apart and whose clothes in each case were utterly missing. Something else to consider. Marie Antoinette Ancy's murder has always been connected to Zodiac because of the timing, the place, and because she was taken from the Coronado Inn where Darlene Farron used to go dancing. The murder has been closely associated with Zodiac because her body was found not far from Lake Berryessa, where Hartnell and Shepard were attacked by a man in an executioner's hood armed with a gun and a dagger. 
But because of her name being almost identical to Antoinette Marie Anino, and because they were both found completely nude with their clothing totally absent, and because they were both drowned, and because Lance is tied directly to Antoinette Marie Anino by virtue of his arrest, this case brings Lance closer still to the Zodiac killings. I mean, I always admit when I'm going out on a limb or when I suspect my theories are a bit far-fetched, and there have been a few of those, admittedly, but I think this is not a stretch, not at all. There's just too much there there to be coincidental. In fact, the more I thought about the near exactness of their names, the more I'm beginning to believe that the names of the victims in these cases matter. A lot. With what to me is mind-blowing match in the names between Antoinette Marie Anino and Marie Antoinette Ancy, I'm beginning to think there's something going on here. Okay, I mean sure, some people were given to naming their daughters after the famous or rather infamous Queen of France, but that aside, the parallel cases are still extraordinary, at least to me. So again, the postcard sent on the one-year anniversary of Marie Antoinette's disappearance was the Sierra Club Sought Victim 12 Peek Through the Pines postcard associated with Donna Lass, who went missing from Lake Tahoe. Sending such a card on the anniversary of Marie Antoinette Ancy's disappearance is a taunting behavior. The act of sending correspondence on the anniversary of her body being found is as intentional and calculated as it is cryptic. Likewise, if we are to interpret Lance's placement of the found German Shepherd classified ad on the one-year anniversary of when Kristen David's remains were found as a taunt to police via the local paper, and I'm beginning to think that we can view it as such, then you have exactly parallel behaviors, or the same behavior of one individual. Of course, one could rightfully ask if Lance is, was Zodiac, why did he go to all the trouble with the ciphers and cryptic postcards announcing his presence in the Bay Area only to shift to a subversive, coded, classified ad that 99.9% .9 of the paper's readership would only see as a boring, classified ad? I think the answer is simple. The LC Valley was simply too small for anyone to send such audacious correspondence. The postal workers in such towns know or know of the people living on their routes, often intimately. The reporters and editors working at the small town dailies at the time also know their readership by and large. In short, it would have been too risky, too loud, and too showy, even by Lance's standards, to send such galling letters through the postal system routed to the editor's desk of the local paper. But with classified ads, such a person could have it both ways. He could taunt the police, but hide in plain sight. Catch me if you can, or catch on if you can. Strangely enough, right about the time I was looking into the Marie Antoinette Ancy case, which I did not know about until literally about two weeks ago, Sam Sawyer texted me and Gloria an image of another one of Lance's classified ads that I had missed. This one was an ad not for a dog, but for a car. It reads, quote, 71 Thunderbird, body good, rebuilt engine, transmission needs work. $500, comma, keep trying, end quote. So what, right? Well, first off, a few things. I had asked Detective Jackie Nichols at one point if she knew what cars Lance had during this period surrounding the cases, and she did, but I don't believe a 71 Thunderbird was among them, so that's a bit odd. The other odd part is that weird little bit at the end of the classified, keep trying, now, in classified speak of the early 1980s, an era when answering machines were rare, that is meant to be interpreted as, keep calling because I might not be able to answer right away. But if one were clever and wanted to impart that phrase with a subversive alternate interpretation, then it could be read in a much more taunting way. 
as in keep trying to catch me, keep trying to figure out who's killing people in the valley, keep trying to solve these murders, keep trying to track down this phantom monster, this hunter of humans, this industrious mechanic who carries out his executions, etc. But for me, the biggest and craziest aspect to this classified is that it ran from June 26 to July 3rd, 1983, the two-year anniversary of Kristen David's disappearance and the anniversary of the day when her remains were found. So now we have not one but two classified ads from Lance Voss that occur on specific anniversaries connected to the two most important timestamps in her case the day she vanished, June 26, and July 4th, the day her remains were found. One classified ad entailed a dog, the other a car. As I began looking at this ad more closely, I noticed that if you begin with the letter K in the word work, as in needs work, and then you move backwards through the letters, you can easily see Kristen, K-R-I-S-T-I-N which is a somewhat unusual spelling of that name, with two I's as opposed to the more common spelling that uses an E as the final vowel. So there's that. So Kristen's name shows up in reverse consecutively in an ad that runs on the two-year anniversary of her disappearance. Now, it had never occurred to me before to look for words or names appearing backwards in the classified ads until a listener named Kathy Belbin reached out to me a while back with another interesting discovery. Recently, we jumped on a call to discuss her findings. My name is Kathy Belbin, lifelong resident of Bellingham, which is part of lots of true crime cases that I've been interested in my whole life. And I teach high school psychology. Right now I have general psych, AP psych, and I teach forensic psych. And then I teach sophomore English. I think when I saw the advertisement or the, the classified ad that was written by the suspect or probably written by the suspect, you know, I just, I love words and wordplay and I just started looking at it and I'm still looking at it and thinking about why is the word husky capitalized and why did he use an ampersand instead of the word and? Does the phone number, I can't remember if you identified both phone numbers as belonging to him. Yeah, both numbers do belong to him. And it, it's a little bit weird because he had several phone numbers. And, you know, this was in the 80s. And that's a little unusual, right? I mean, growing up, my family had two phone numbers, but we had a business phone number mm -hmm. for our restaurant and our hotel and our bar was actually all one number. And then we had our personal landline. So that was seen to be as like, wow, you have two phone numbers. So he had several. So that's that's a bit odd. I mean, maybe it's not. Maybe it is. I don't know. I'm not as much of a number person as I am a word person. And so, you know, I did look at the numbers and wonder if they corresponded with the letters on the phone. And of course, there's a website where you can run phone numbers through and it does all the work for you. And it, it didn't turn out with anything. But I don't feel as capable with numbers as I do with words. But it does because we, you know, we know that he is a, a code guy, yeah. that he's into wordplay. I just assume that nothing that he includes is there without a purpose. It's not arbitrary. Right. I mean, I think it was, I don't know if this is true or not, but maybe apocryphal, but I think it was one of my high school teachers who told us that Edgar Allan Poe had a rule that n not a single word was included that didn't have an absolute purpose in his writing, like nothing superfluous. So when you were looking at the Husky ad, 
what did you find? Because you found a couple of things that I didn't I didn't see. Well, I figured as long as Christina's name was in there going forward, I wondered if her last name was in there too. And I found white backwards, W from weekend, H from husky, reusing the I from a Soten, the T from a Soten, and then the E from the. Yeah. It can't be accidental. It's it's consecutive too. It's not scrambling. Right, right. So, I also found Voss backwards consecutively with the V in Eves, the O in Brown, the S in Asotan again, and the S in Lost. Right. So, I you know when you first messaged me this, I, I put a note down like, wow. First of all, wow, that's a cool. That's an amazing find. And I hadn't been looking at any of the ads for spellings going backwards. I was only looking for them mm -hmm. going forwards. So that's why it, it, like crowdsourcing this stuff is so important. Right. right, yeah, exactly. So there are a couple of things about my discussion with Kathy that I want to address here. But first, you should know that Kathy has Hollywood credits to her name. Yeah, that's right. She actually worked as a writer on the television series Veronica Mars starring Kristen Bell. For the uninitiated, the series follows a high school cheerleader turned private detective who solves standalone crimes in each episode while continuing to work on an overarching mystery. The series is smart and the writing is fantastic. If you haven't seen it, you should check it out. So that's one thing that I found interesting about Kathy, her background in writing noir. Second is the fact that she teaches forensic psychology along with other psychology classes and she teaches English. So she's bringing a very interesting set of perspectives to these cases and this classified ad in particular. Also, I thought it was completely fascinating that she brought up Edgar Allan Poe and how he viewed every word in a short story as absolutely purposeful. I find her mentioning of Poe fascinating for two reasons. First, because she wondered whether or not what her teacher had taught her about Poe was true or apocryphal. Well, according to literary critic, author, and historian Kevin J. Hayes, that observation is true. In a 2019 interview, Hayes noted how, quote, Poe concentrated on the words themselves as elements in his composition. When writing a poem, Samuel Taylor Coleridge said that every word counts. Poe went Coleridge one better. He said that not only does every word count, but the position of every word matters too. Poe not only sought the right word for the right moment, but he also considered how each word fit with those that surrounded it." End quote. Now, I mention this passage here for three reasons. First, because it's beginning to look like Lance may have been exercising the same kind of aesthetic in his own writings. Not only do the words themselves matter, but the placement of the words in relation to the other words matter especially. This is absolutely vital, particularly if you're trying to arrange words in such a way that names can be spelled out forwards and backwards. Second, as with the short story The Most Dangerous Game, I have no doubts whatsoever that Lance had read Edgar Allan Poe because A, it's difficult to navigate public education in America without reading Poe at some point, and B, Lance would have likely been drawn to the kind of darkness that is so commonly associated with Poe's short stories. And that brings me to the third reason I mentioned Kevin Hayes' quote here, because this isn't the first time Edgar Allan Poe has come up in this episode. Recall that it was Poe who, in 1842, wrote the short story, The Mask of the Red Death, and how that story inspired the early film El Spectre Rojo, or The Red Phantom, 
and how it is believed that the Zodiac was referencing that film slash short story and or The Phantom of the Opera when referring to himself as the Red Phantom. Now, bearing all of that in mind for the moment, I want to come back to the kind of car allegedly for sale here in the ad that Sam had found. And I say allegedly because we don't know if Lance ever owned a 71 Thunderbird. But why would somebody make that up? Put an imaginary car in a classified ad? Well, if you're a person who harbors psychopathic tendencies, then you might place such an ad because it could act as a honeypot, attracting unsuspecting innocents into your ship trap island. So that's one possibility. Another possibility could entail the kind of car allegedly being advertised, in this case a 71 Ford Thunderbird, and the possibility that the make of the car might contain a clue. Curious, I looked into it. Turns out, when the silent film El Spectre Rojo, or The Red Phantom, was re-released in the early 70s and screened in the Bay Area in the theater with the large Zodiac painted on the ceiling, the company who resurrected that film and brought it back into the public's eye was an enterprise called Thunderbird Films. Something else to consider. When Donna Lass vanished from South Lake Tahoe, there was a prominent lodge in the area called the Thunderbird Lodge. Oh, and one more thing as it relates to cars Lance may or may not have owned. On June 21st, 1981, the day of the summer solstice and five days before Kristen David went missing, an article appeared in the Sunday edition of the Lewiston Morning Tribune with a large photo of a woman standing in front of her new business, Riverport Real Estate. The woman's name was Dolores Brereton, who is now deceased. But at the time, she had moved from California to Asotin 18 months earlier and set up her business in Clarkston. But Brereton's interests also extended into insurance, home, and auto, while the name of her real estate business, Riverport, calls to my mind at least, Lakeport, mentioned in the Marie Antoinette Anzi case, her twin business interests in real estate and insurance connected her to Lance Voss. It turns out, based on statements she had made, that Lance insured his vehicles through Dolores. But here's the odd part. Lance registered nearly all of his vehicles not in his name, but in his mother's name. And get this, one of those vehicles happened to be a light brown van. That's right. One of the biggest stumbling blocks in connecting Kristen David's murder to Lance was the apparent absence of a brown van linked to him. In my mind, Dolores' information on this matter changes everything. In other words, if law enforcement searched DMV files for vans connected to a Lance Voss, or if they looked up Lance to see what vehicles he owned, they would have found either very few or none. That's because those cars would have been registered under a woman named Jane, Olive, Nelson, Neputy, Aiken, or any combination of those names. How convenient. Oh, just so you know, the connections between Dolores Brereton and Lance don't stop there. In fact, they take a much much darker turn. The Snake River Killer is a production of Resuscitate Media, LLC. I'm the host, Brandon Schrand. Original music is written and performed by the Young Knight Drifters. Special thanks to Blake Walker, our engineer, associate producers and investigators Gloria Boberts and Paul Dale, graphic designer and content contributor Samantha Sawyer, research consultant and criminologist Dr. Marianne White, and research assistant Tina Landry-Otti. Special thanks to Jennifer Anderson and Vernon Lott for letting us air portions of their documentary, Confluence. Be sure to check us out online where you can subscribe to the show and find resources, photos, timelines, articles, links, and more. 